Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is your BFF, I hope, Nurse Mo. And today we are talking about SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus. So this is episode 56. And because I'm in graduate school and I'm doing these very intense case studies a lot this semester, I thought, why not double dip a little bit? So I'm going to use all the knowledge that I've gained working on my case studies and then present that to you here in the podcast. How fun is that? So I just did probably the most giant case study ever on SLE for my advanced pathophysiology class. And I was a little bitter about it because I really didn't expect it to take 10 hours. And I thought, I've got to turn this into a positive. So here we are on the podcast. We're talking about lupus. So we're going to do this using my latte method. Lupus is a very complex disease. And the great thing about the latte method is that it makes learning complex things very simple. So if you're not familiar with latte... Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to share this with you today. And if you are, then you know what I'm talking about. So latte is a systematic way to think through a disease condition or patient problem that prevents you from going off on wild tangents. It really focuses in on the things you need to know as a nursing student and even as a nurse working at the bedside. It's great and it absolutely changed the way I studied when I was in nursing school and ended up saving me a ton of time. So LATTE is an acronym, L-A-T-T-E, inspired by my love of coffee, and the L stands for look. How is this patient with lupus going to look? In other words, When you walk into the room or when they walk into your office at the clinic, when you look at them, talk to them, hear them, anything, when you encounter this patient, what are the key things that you're going to notice about them? The A stands for how are you going to assess this patient? These are basically the things that you're going to be monitoring and watching for in your patient who is coming to you with a lupus flare. The first T in latte stands for what tests are going to be ordered. It's important to know what tests and diagnostics to expect, partially so that you know if the patient requires any prep before an exam of some kind. Also, because you want to know what to go look for when you're hunting through the chart. And then thirdly, you want to make solid recommendations to your interdisciplinary team. So knowing what tests are usually conducted is very helpful. And then the second T in LATTE is what treatments will be provided. What can you anticipate the pharmacological treatments to be and the non-pharmacological treatments? Basically, what are you going to do about it? And then the E in latte is educate. How will you educate the patient and in many cases, the patient's family? So before we get into the latte for systemic lupus erythematosus, let's just talk very briefly about what it is. So lupus is 
as I said, a very complex disease. It's a chronic inflammatory disease considered one of the autoimmune diseases where the body is basically attacking itself. It's incredibly complicated. It will attack the body in so many ways. And that's why caring for these patients can be very difficult. And it's a very difficult disease to have. And if anyone out there listening has lupus, you have my heart. I wish you the very, very best. Lupus will affect mostly women, mostly women of childbearing age. It is thought that there is a very big estrogen component in the development and the flaring of lupus. And it is a lot higher incidence in African Americans than in whites. So you're mostly going to see this in women. I think it's like a 10 to 1 ratio, women to men, and then more African Americans than whites. So what causes lupus? Basically, the cause for it is unknown. Autoimmune disease, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that we don't know a lot about why it happens. There is a genetic component. You will often see lupus running in families or in families with other autoimmune disorders. Like say you've got a mom with rheumatoid arthritis, you could have an aunt with lupus or a child with lupus. So autoimmune diseases often kind of cluster together. When you're looking at a lupus flare, there are things in the environment that can cause a lupus flare up. A big one is UV light and sunlight, um, infections when the body is kind of when you're when you're down and then your body kicks you when you're down, that can induce a flare. And some medications can cause lupus-like symptoms that typically are transient. And one of the biggest culprits of this is hydralazine, which is a medication used for hypertension. So what happens in lupus? Basically, the very short, very short version is that immune immune complexes that contain antibodies. They are these big clunky things and they get deposited in the tissues where they wreak havoc. So they can be in all kinds of tissues, all organs of the body essentially. And so when we get to talking about the clinical manifestations of lupus, you'll see that it really is has earned its nickname as the great imitator because it will create all kinds of problems in the body, all kinds of other diseases. So let's start talking about some of those clinical manifestations now. This is the L in latte. How will your patient look? They're coming to you and they're sick. Maybe they're having a lupus flare. A lot of issues could be going on with your patient. Remember, I just said that lupus, those antibody complexes are going to get into the tissues. Basically, your whole body is made of tissues, right? So it really could land anywhere. So you will see maybe your patient's joints are swollen. You could see swelling of the joints and they could be saying, my joints ache. That's because those antibody complexes have gotten into the joints. Very painful. You may see the 
very singular rash for lupus is what's called a butterfly rash. So this is when the skin has been affected. And this can flare, especially when the individual is exposed to that UV light, that sunlight. This is called a butterfly rash because it goes across the cheeks and the nose, kind of shaped like a butterfly. Your patient may present with hair loss, alopecia, which is pretty common in patients who have lupus. This is usually common, common, usually caused by discoid lupus erythematosus, DLE, and the scalp is the most common site of that skin condition to manifest. And it goes through a process where there's inflammation there. And the hair follicles are basically not working properly. Scarring takes place in that location and hair loss is present and pretty much irreversible permanent hair loss. You will often have your patients preventing with signs of vasculitis. They could have hematologic problems. So they may have anemias, they may have clotting disorders, they may be prone to bruising or a lot of bleeding. They may just be straight up tired. You know, when you're anemic, you're tired. When your body is fighting off an immune response, you're tired. Fatigue is a very common symptom that your patient may complain of. Maybe they have a fever. A lot of patients with Lupus may come to you and have Raynaud's syndrome. And that's a very interesting phenomenon that you can look up. It's spelled R-A-Y-N-A-U-D-S. It's essentially a condition where the arteries spasm, especially in the periphery. You'll see it a lot in the hands, sometimes in the feet as well. And those arteries spasm and they block off blood flow. And you can often see a very clear delineation between pink, perfused skin, and then white non-perfused skin, and it is exacerbated often by cold temperatures. Many, many patients with lupus will come to you with renal insufficiency, even chronic kidney disease or renal failure. They may look edematous. Maybe they have fluid overload, so they're getting that swelling in their lower extremities. Maybe they're even having some difficulty breathing because they are so fluid overloaded because the renal insufficiency is so pronounced. A common condition is called lupus nephritis, and some common signs of that would be protein in the urine and a low GFR. Lots and lots of GI problems with SLE. Patients could come to you with problems from anywhere in the GI tract, from esophagitis down to um, acute pancreatitis. So any part of the GI tract can get affected by lupus. Also the lungs. Remember we said every tissue in the body, this is no, no lie. So the lungs, um, you could have pneumonitis, you could have even alveolar hemorrhage. If you are having alveolar hemorrhage, then you're very, very sick and most likely in a critical care environment. Lots of risk for infection due to the medications that we're going to give these patients with lupus. So they're prone to things like bronchitis and pneumonias and lung infections in general. Cardiovascular issues can also be present. The most common would be uh, pericarditis, could even have an endocarditis leading to valve disorders. Your patient with lupus could also have lymph node enlargement. So the ones that you can feel 
Most noticeably are the submandibular, the axillary, and the inguinal lymph nodes. But there's lymph nodes all over the body, and patients can have systemic lymph node enlargement. And basically, systemic lymph node enlargement is when there's two non-contiguous lymph nodes involved, meaning they're not right next to each other. Otherwise, if it's just the one lymph node in a specific area, usually that's a sign of a more localized infection or inflammation. But your patients with lupus have systemic inflammation, so they're going to have lymph node enlargement in more than one place typically. Patients with lupus can also suffer from neuro and psychiatric disorders. So it, this could be anything like seizures to psychosis. So definitely having that Awareness can help you provide really compassionate care to these patients, and the eyes can get attacked by these antibody complexes as well, leading to things like retinal vasculitis, causing what are called cotton wool spots, and also the most common is a type of conjunctivitis where there's basically extreme dryness of the eyes with no tears or very little tear production and that I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's called Coretto conjunctivitis sica. No idea if I said that right. So that is in a very small nutshell, the latte L. How will your patient look? What are they going to come in complaining of, looking like, suffering from? What are the clinical manifestations? So next we move on to how we are going to assess this patient. Really for lupus, it just depends on what problem they are coming to you with. So in this regard, the A part of latte is going to be really dependent on what the L part of latte was. For example, let's say they've come to you and they've got edema and you're suspecting renal involvement. So you're going to be tracking things like eyes and nose. How much fluid are they taking in? How much fluid are they urinating out? You're going to be looking at certain lab tests. You're going to be listening to their lung sounds to make sure that that fluid overload isn't affecting their lungs. You'll be assessing their level of edema. So in this regard, the A really does depend on what the L is in the latte system. Overall, assessing for organ involvement will be key. Assessing for hematological disorders, fatigue, fever, signs of infection, and joint pain, which is also really common. So let's move on to talking about the tests. How is lupus diagnosed and evaluated from a testing and diagnostic standpoint? So because lupus is that great imitator and has so many clinical manifestations, there is a whole list of criteria involved in the diagnosis. And you're not diagnosing lupus because you're not a physician. Maybe you're a nurse practitioner student, though, and you, and you could be, but, um, Basically, what the physician is going to be looking at is four symptoms from this list of many happening either all at the same time or in very close relationship to one another. 
those are things like the rash and the joint pain. And there, there's several others, but just know that it's, it's basically four things happening either all at once or very in close proximity to one another. And then from there, they get down into the blood tests. Okay. So the labs. So there's a CBC could check for anemias. It could check for leukopenia, which is too few white blood cells or thrombocytopenia, which is too few platelets, common conditions that patients with lupus have. You could be looking at an ANA, an anti-nuclear antibody test. So if that's positive, that's indicative of lupus. If that's positive, then the physician would likely order more specific antibody tests to see, looking for things like um, antibodies to double-stranded DNA, to the Smith antigen. There's a whole bunch of them. You don't need to know what they are. Just know the ANA one is very commonly done. And then if that's positive, they're going to look and dig deeper and look for antibodies against specific things. You would also want to look for signs of chronic systemic inflammation. So that's going to be the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which is going to be elevated in systemic inflammation or in conjunction with or on its own, the CRP, C-reactive protein, which is also a measure of inflammation in the body. Those would both typically be elevated in lupus. People with lupus tend to have decreased complement. If you remember from your immune I believe it's part of the innate immunity, that complement system. So they're deficient in C3 and C4. So that could be looked at. You could also look for um, imaging, imaging of whatever organ you think is involved. So this could be CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, x-rays, Whatever organ is involved, you want to look at it. And then also additional labs for specific organ involvement as well. For instance, that patient that came in with that edema that you're thinking is maybe having some renal involvement. Maybe they've been saying, my urine's really foamy. Well, foamy urine is a sign of protein in the urine, proteinuria, which goes along with lupus nephritis, which is that inflammation in the kidneys and the antibodies getting clogging up the the nephrons there. So you would look for creatinine. You would look at the urine and do a urinalysis to see, is there protein in the urine? So again, the same as with the assessments that you're doing to monitor your patient, the tests are also at times going to be very general in the beginning. And then as organ involvement is suspected, tests specific to whichever organ is being affected at that time. So the second T in latte is treated. How is lupus treated? Well, the sad part about lupus is that there is no cure. There are a lot of treatments available, however, and the treatments are vary depending on the severity of the disease and if the patient is having what's called a flare, an active flare. And flares can be mild, moderate, and very, very severe. So for patients with mild disease, or stable disease, they can often manage their symptoms with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, or low-dose prednisone. In a lot of patients, you'll see them prescribed an anti-malarial drug. These are the drugs that end in Q-U-I-N-E. I would try to pronounce some of them, but I will butcher it. But just know that an anti-malarial in a patient with lupus does not mean that they have malaria. 
Without getting deep into the pharmacokinetics and pharmacology of antimalarials, all you really need to know is that they boost the immune system so that the symptoms of lupus are less severe without predisposing the patient to infection the way that prednisone might as an immunosuppressant drug. Plus, another great benefit of the antimalarials is that studies have shown that it can help prevent the lupus from establishing organ involvement, so preventing the affection of the heart, the lungs, the kidney, etc. Now, when those organs are involved, we're not going to be using the antimalarials then. We're going to be using more hardcore drugs. The antimalarials are intended for use in stable patients without very acute organ involvement and severe flares. So let's say your patient has a moderate flare of their lupus symptoms. A lot of times these are just simply treated with higher doses of that glucocorticoid, that prednisone. But then your patient may have a severe flare. This is where the organs are involved. And this is when we have to pull out the big guns. So this is often a multi-drug approach. This is the patient that's going to be on high-dose prednisone, or high-dose solumedrol, which is IV medication in the inpatient setting. They are going to probably be on an immunosuppressive agent. This is your cyclophosphamide, methotrexate, azathioprine. I really can't pronounce half of these drugs, mycophenolate, things like that that are immunosuppressive drugs that are very strong. You could have monoclonal antibodies prescribed. These are the ones, you see a lot of these um, ending in MAB, M-A-B. I will try to pronounce. One of the newest is, I'm not even going to attempt it, U-S-T-E-K-I-N-U-M-A-B, Ustekinumab. Please respond and let me know how you would say that word. And then Rituximab as well. You may also hear the term DMARD or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. This is the category that that methotrexate falls in, into. So you may also see methotrexate used to treat patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So just to be clear, not all patients with organ involvement are hospitalized, but when the organ becomes severely dysfunctional, then they may need to be. So you could have patients out there who are in chronic renal failure with lupus who are taking some of these medications. They're not always just for in-hospital use. So I just wanted to be clear about that. So we start with the mild, you know, the NSAIDs, that low-dose prednisone, stable patients getting those anti-malarials. As the flares get more intense, we may do higher-dose prednisone add that on with the antimalarial, or even add on an immunosuppressive as the organs start to get involved. And that, again, are the, the monoclonal antibodies, which is the rituximabs, the DMARDs, which is the methotrexate, and uh, other immunosuppressive drugs such as cyclophosphamide or azithioprine, which I apologize for not being able to pronounce. So then the EN latte is how are you going to educate your patient. Lots of patient education with lupus. It's a very difficult disease to live with, very difficult disease to manage, but patients can do lots of things to help optimize their health and their immune system. So if your patient is smoking, you want to provide smoking cessation. 
preferably they're not drinking alcohol either just because the liver can get involved. So I would typically probably not expect to see lupus patients drinking alcohol much, especially if the liver is involved. You want to teach them about sun exposure. They want to avoid that because of the propensity for that rash to develop and for their skin to get inflamed. Because they're not getting a lot of sun exposure, they may need vitamin D supplementation. So you would want to talk with them about that. As far as the diet goes, there's no specific diet indicated for lupus besides a healthy balanced diet where you get a wide range of nutrients from your diet. Now, if the patient's unable to eat, maybe they've got some GI involvement and it makes it difficult for them to sustain a healthy diet, they may need to take a multivitamin, but most patients, if they're eating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, are getting what they need from their diet. Um, if there is renal involvement, you may need to educate your patient about salt restriction, maybe even a fluid restriction. Exercise can help with fatigue. You just want to talk to them about doing exercise that doesn't cause more fatigue. You know, just walking is absolutely great exercise, something that helps with their energy level and doesn't completely deplete their energy levels that they have. They also want to avoid getting sick, especially if they're taking immunosuppressant drugs, like say they're on prednisone. These patients are immunosuppressed. If they catch a pneumonia, it's going to probably be a bad pneumonia. So you want to make sure that they're getting their flow and pneumonia vaccines, which are okay for patients with lupus. However, if you're looking at vaccinating a patient with lupus with a live attenuated vaccine, and those are those like polio, varicella, measles, things like that, most most physicians would recommend, let's do the vaccines first, and then we'll start your immunosuppressive therapy. So that, in a very tiny nutshell, is the complex, very multifaceted disease of lupus presented to you in, I hope, a simplified latte format. So for your exams, from what I remember being kind of like exam type questions about lupus, the key takeaways most likely are that your patient could look like they have a butterfly rash. That's always going to be mentioned most likely. Butterfly rash is a key visual skin sign of lupus, okay? So that's the L. For the A, for the assessment, what your nursing school instructors want you to know is that lupus can attack pretty much any tissue, any organ in the body, so that you'll be doing a lot of assessment around that. As far as tests go, it's that ANA that's going to be positive, maybe some more specific antibody tests showing that lupus is present. For the treatments, it's low-dose prednisone all the way up to hardcore immunosuppressive drugs. Very key. They will ask you a lot about that anti-malarial probably trying to trick you into thinking that the patient has malaria. So you'll commonly see anti-malarial presented as a test question or an answer to a multiple choice test. And then for the education, it's that sun exposure, that vitamin D replacement if they need it, and then that it is okay to 
get a flu or pneumonia vaccine, but definitely want to avoid live attenuated ones. Do those before starting the therapy. So I would say if you go into a test knowing those things, you'd probably do pretty good on a test asking about this particular autoimmune disorder. There are many, many others and very interesting field of study if that at all appeals to you. So in our next podcast, we will be talking about renal failure dialysis and renal transplant, because guess what? That's my next case study for my advanced pathophysiology course. So take care, everyone. Stay safe out there. I hope you're enjoying your semester. And if you're out of school and you're just listening to this for funsies, then um, maybe you're listening on your way to work. So have a great shift. Okay. Talk to you all very soon. And thank you again for spending your very precious free time with me. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.